reveals the voice of the Holy Spirit and the true spirit that the Bible convicts people of sin. It brings them to the cross. It writes God's law in their hearts and it gives them self-control. That is the spirit that we need in these last days. Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4 to beware of another spirit that can come right into the church and can lead people away from, from the Bible and from Jesus Christ. We all need to pray for the true spirit. We need the Holy Spirit right now. You need him. I need him. And we all need to be aware and to reject counterfeits. As darkness gathers over the nations, we need the pure light of God's word to keep us on the path to heaven. Steve Walburn presents the living truth of God's word in the sword of the spirit, a series that addresses vital topics for these last days. You can order today's program for only $5.95 plus shipping and handling. To order, call 1-800-78-BIBLE or order online at whitehorsemedia.com. Our address is Whitehorse Media, P.O. Box 8057, Fresno, California, 93747. Some stones saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who can't watch Heart of the Matter on television, they can go to www.hotm.tv and watch its streaming video from anywhere in the world. I was a born-again Mormon. It's a manuscript now available through PDF download for free. Go to bornagainmormon.com and you can have that book in your hands within minutes. 
Are you reading and studying the Bible verse by verse? Uh, go to calvarycampus.com and you can learn about uh, never denominational Bible studies that are held every Sunday, once at U of U, once at Utah State. So check that out. Last Friday and Saturday at Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City, they held their first reorganized capstone conference. And uh, I was fortunate enough to attend and just listen to some excellent information available. If you're looking for a sound church to attend in the Salt Lake area, check out Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City. Uh, you can go to www.ccslc.org, I think, org for more information. Speaking at the conference, by the way, was a good friend, none other than Sandra Tanner of utlm.org. We have long supported Utah Lighthouse Ministry and believe they provide the most consistent information on Mormonism. Why? Because they pull from original uh, proof texts from LDS history, from LDS archives, from LDS manuals to tell you uh, what the real uh, facts of the matter are. That's www.utlm. Finally, we had a number of compliments on the video segment that Cassidy presented us last week about the ministry. Many people have asked me where I was or what I was doing in the segment where I sort of got emotional. I was being interviewed by a good friend, John Dellen, at mormonstories.org. You can go to www.mormonstories.org and review the whole thing. I would suggest you do it because I believe it kind of reveals my true heart for the LDS. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we uh, love you and we need you and we seek for your uh, help and your uh, support and love. Uh, help us to understand your ways. Uh, bless our... Uh, our uh, studio audience, our audience out there in uh, viewership land and, and, and our directors and uh, the uh, volunteers, technical staff, and that uh, the things I say will be pleasing to you and truthful. And if they're not, that they will just evaporate and people will find the truth on their own. This we pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We left off last week having discussed part one of spiritual rebirth, justification from both the LDS and from the biblical perspective, we ended with a verse from Romans 5.10, which says, for if, we, for if when we were enemies, or if when we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This verse actually describes all of the effects of true salvation, which includes being justified by the grace through faith uh, in his shed blood, uh, or as it says in that verse, through the death of his son. But it also speaks of our being, quote, saved by his life. I think most of us have some understanding of what it means to be justified by his blood. As we said last week, justification is the opposite of condemnation. And it is basically a legal term which announces once and for all that we have been rendered innocent of breaking any and all of God's laws or commands. Justification takes us as we are and it announces that through our faith, we have done everything we are expected to do relative to God's perfect law. But justification does not make us holy. It just makes us not guilty. And um, you see, we live in a world where people are paraded today kind of as heroes because they'll tell the truth or because they'll return a lost wallet that's full of money 
or because someone keeps their virginity until they're married. In God's economy, these are just plain expectations of all people. And they're not really worthy of reward, but they're just basic expectations of what a person should do. When someone claims, well, I've lived a good life, God could say, well, you should have lived a good life. I mean, it's a basic expectation. Why should there be a reward for doing what we should do in the first place? In some ways, this is what justification does on our behalf. The shed blood of Jesus takes our failures of meeting God's basic expectations, his law, and removes the condemnation that comes by our failures to follow it. Through this justification, we are essentially made a blank slate by the shed blood, a big blank tabula rasa. Certainly our crimes that were on the books are cleared away. There are no charges against us anymore, and that is really awesome. But we are not made holy through justification, just free of all the negative charges. Holiness implies that we are more than just a clean slate. It implies righteous attributes and actions and attitudes. The word holiness is synonymous with the word sanctify in scripture and sanctification. Now, if all that Jesus did was to justify those who believe on his name, then the end result would be at our death, when we go to God cleared of all charges, we would not possess anything positive. We would just be blank slates. But God desires all of his children to have holy merit too. I guess it would kind of be like if you had twins twin boys, let's say, and you sent them out when they're 18 and you said, go out into the world and come back when you're 90 or 80 or 70 and report back to me and tell me what life was about. One of those twins went out and he tested and he suffered and he made mistakes and he failed and he had successes, but he personally grew and made decisions in the end that were good and righteous and, and holy. The other son goes out and just hides under a rock fearing of making a mistake. And 50 years come by and he comes back with the other twin and the, the, he says, I'm exactly like I left. I have not done anything wrong. But he hasn't done anything right either. He is absolutely void of anything. He's just blank slate. The other one, while having made mistakes, has come and grown into a righteous, holy, sanctified life. How does a Christian who confesses Christ and dies like the thief on the cross or those who are babes in Christ and die, how do they have any holy merit of their own? The answer is by and through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is imputed to them when they believe. Enter the second part, if you will, of being born again. The first part being justification the second immediate sanctification, all right? If all Jesus did in terms of our salvation was to come and justify us or remove us and make us a clean slate, I would suppose, this is just conjecture, that he could have come down to this earth as a full-grown man, somehow constructed a body for him to land on earth in, died for the sins of the world, and then uh, the debt would have been paid. But God also sanctifies believers immediately, makes them holy and righteous when they believe on his shed blood. 
and that it was gained, that righteousness was gained as a man, not as God, but as a man, by taking on a body of flesh and bone as an infant and being tested and tried and tempted, it says, in all things, but failed or succumbed to none. And uh, through that righteousness, that righteous life, this infant through his life, earned as a man who went by the spirit and the will of God, that righteousness is then imputed to people immediately when they believe. Therefore, when a person believes on his name, they're not only justified from all their sins, meaning they're not condemned, they are also sanctified, they are made righteous and holy through his life. Is that amazing or what? I mean, this type or aspect of sanctification is why Christians believe in deathbed repentance. And they know that the thief on the cross was not only cleared of all of his sin, but he was actually made righteous and holy through the righteous life that Christ lived. Speaking of our being sanctified, not justified, sanctified by faith in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus Christ, quote, became for us wisdom of God and became for us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Jesus Christ came for us as wisdom, as righteousness, as sanctification and redemption. Why? So that when anybody would glory in the growth that they have, they ought to glory in him. A believer does not ever glory in their own righteousness, not in their own purity or preparation, but in him. When a person understands that Jesus not only erased their crimes against God's law, but that he makes them righteous uh, and holy before God, the elements of human pride are erased and the glory is turned to God. With respect to this type of sanctification, this first type, Mormonism and Christianity are worlds apart. In Mormonism, there is no imputed righteousness that immediately comes to those who believe on Christ. Why? Because to the LDS, righteousness, holiness, sanctification, and personal merit begins and ends in them by their own works of righteousness because they are all pursuing a path to become gods. Where Christians know that they are holy, righteous, and worthy only in and through him, Latter-day Saints are certain that they are establishing their own righteousness before God. In Romans chapter 10, there are a series of passages that, in my opinion, uh, describe this errant LDS view perfectly. Why is this position written in Romans? Because the Jews were under the very same impression at the time of Paul. Listen to what it says in Romans 10, verses 1 through 4. It's really amazing. It says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God, excuse me, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, just like the Latter-day Saints, but not according to knowledge. Why? He says, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Speaking of Christ's work, the writer of Hebrews 10.10 says, quote, by the which we are sanctified, not justified, but sanctified, 
through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. Every Bible-believing Christian understands that once a person accepts and receives Jesus, they are saved by grace through faith, having been both immediately justified, slate clean, and, and immediately sanctified in God's eyes. Now, the peace and truth of this assurance that comes can't be bought or found in any other method that men present. And it eliminates all the fears and worries and concerns that people might have about someday having to face the wrath of God. And it brings this, this whole security uh, uh, that when they step before his throne, they will be forgiven and righteous in his eyes. Only then does God become Papa, as scriptures call him, Abba, Father, um, our loving, unconditional Heavenly Father. Then and only then can people say without hesitation that they've been born again, that they've become a new creature in Christ, that old things have passed away and all things have become new. Within Mormonism, there exists perhaps one of the ugliest admixtures or twists of scripture relative to this subject. These sick man-made doctrines ensure that most Latter-day Saints will never experience true rebirth, but are instead trapped in a life of servitude to the LDS church itself. We know from last week's program that Mormonism first teaches that spiritual rebirth only comes about by receiving their ordinances of water baptism and what they call their laying on the hands for the, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Brigham Young said, quote, every ordinance, every commandment and requirement is necessary for the salvation of the human family. But the demands for salvation do not end here in Mormonism. They then take the grace that is wrought by faith and remove it even further from the hearts of other Latter-day Saints by teaching that holiness or sanctification comes only through their own works, their own efforts, and that it is not imputed to a believer by faith in Christ alone. Wilfred Woodruff, fourth president of the LDS Church, said, quote, if I ever obtain a full salvation, it will be by my keeping the laws of God. Joseph F. Smith, sixth president of the LDS Church, added to this baloney by saying in an April general conference in 1915, quote, I do not believe that a man is saved in this life by believing or professing to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but that he must endure to the end and keep the commandments that the Mormon Church gives. Since these early years, it seems that the animus these leaders have held for the biblical doctrine of salvation by grace through faith has increased. The Bible plainly says in Romans 10:9 that if you shall confess with your mouth uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And where it says in Ephesians 2:8, quote, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Tenth president of the LDS Church, Joseph Fielding Smith said, quote, one of the most pernicious doctrines ever advocated by man is the justification by faith alone, which has entered into the hearts of millions since the days of the, quote, so-called Reformation. When I was a teenager, 12th prophet of the church, Spencer W. Kimball, wrote in his literary piece of filth, The Miracle of Forgiveness, this, quote, one of the most fallacious doctrines originated by Satan and propounded by man is that man is saved alone by the grace of God. That belief in Jesus Christ alone is all that is needed for salvation.
where Kimball said that the doctrine of faith alone saves a person comes from Satan. The Bible says in Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that he might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't speak of another aspect of sanctification, which many people, LDS and Christian, do not really understand. When the thief on the cross believed, and he was justified and sanctified by his belief, um, that occurred, and that's what the story tells us. And the shed blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ was imputed to him, etc. And then the thief died perfectly just and righteous before God. But what if, after his dialogue with the Lord there on the cross, just what if, okay, what if the Roman soldiers suddenly took the thief down before he died and they cleaned up his wounds after he had had his confession with Jesus and he went on to live another 40 or 50 years in this earth? Here is where the other aspect of Christian sanctification comes into play. Because once you have been justified and sanctified fully by the shed blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit moves into a believer, and into your heart permanently, he begins the sanctifying work of from within the believer. Now, sometimes people experience rebirth and they are immediately able to toss away much of the world, becoming actually new creatures in their flesh. We've all heard stories. I know people who were alcoholics, oddly enough, received the Lord at a bar and uh, didn't never took another drink. You know, this stuff does happen. Or criminals who are in prison receive the Lord and they turn completely from a life of crime. Uh, to this, we all praise God, right? But even those people have to go through the Holy Spirit sanctifying them and helping them along through other areas of their life. Um, we know that at rebirth, many are literally babes in Christ and babes we know make, you know, spiritual babies, they're going to make a lot of messes. They're going to create disasters in diapers and in households. They're going to tear things up and they're babes in Christ. There is no expe expectation of perfection of a new believer. What the thief would do, we're not sure. Maybe he would go for a season and return to a life of crime. That's entirely possible for someone who receives Christ. Or maybe he would make a 180 degree about face and become an immediate missionary for Christ. We just don't know. But what we do know is that the thief on the cross was saved by his faith. That was it. No other works and the righteousness was imputed. And this knowledge would immediately or over the course of that thief's life, thief's life if he lived, would ultimately bring him to the place God wants him to be and to grow him. Uh, and how do we know this? Because he had been born again. He has a new heart. He has a new spirit within him. He is a new creature. And the Holy Spirit within him will forever prompt and push and kind of push at his brain and his heart against things that are not right part of his fleshly will. This sanctification is progressive work of divine grace upon the soul who has wholly been saved by Christ. These believers are gradually cleansed from the corruption in their nature and they will be rewarded in the eternities by the fruit of the spirit that ultimately is produced through their walk with Christ. Um, this second and more processional part of sec uh, sanctification, I'm just going to call living sanctification. Now, notice something very important about living sanctification, okay? Living sanctification is the result. I wish we could have a, a science that says, result, result. 
living sanctification, becoming better Christians, becoming better believers is the result of having been born again. It is not the opposite, all right? In other words, living good lives does not produce um, or merit spiritual rebirth. We don't live well so that we can receive God's spiritual rebirth. If that was the case, why would we need rebirth? We could just live so well, we wouldn't need it at all. So he saves us when we are yet in our sin. It is our brokenness. It is our humility and what life takes us and brings us down to that allows the door for spiritual rebirth to take place. Notice that it was a thief on the cross. It wasn't a king in a carriage that was saved. Okay, it was the brokenness from the life lived that brought him to the point of recognizing the need for Jesus. We do not try and perfect ourselves in order to be born again or in order to be worthy of the shed blood of Jesus or to be worthy of the Holy Spirit to abide with us. And yet this is another twist the LDS suggests to burden their members that they must be worthy and righteous by their own merits in order to have the Holy Spirit with them, that this Holy Spirit's presence within them is highly conditional and it's based on the continuation of a person's personal worthiness. What a burden. What a load of manure, actually. All to keep you chained to the system. What they do is they provide you with an impossible system to keep and so you get on that treadmill, you fail, you feel guilty, you go back to that impossible system and say, what do I do? And they throw out more things that are impossible to do, and you stay chained in that prison. And that is totally contraintuitive to what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches. Listen, we do not cause the Holy Spirit to depart from our permanent place because of our faults. The Holy Spirit stays in spite of our faults. That's the difference between a born-again Christian and Latter-day Saints and their, and their definition of what it means to be spiritually regenerated. It wouldn't make sense. You wouldn't be able to trust God. You wouldn't be able to really rely on him if, it was so, if he was so mercurial in his moods that, oh, well, you know, you kind of lusted after that big chocolate cake, Sean. That's gluttony. Boom, Holy Spirit gone. No. He is long-suffering with us. The Holy Spirit is with us permanently by what? The shed blood of Jesus Christ. Doesn't this view support the sacred and beautiful love of God and the work that Jesus did? Achieving perfect living sanctification in our life, becoming holy in our flesh is absolutely impossible. But it doesn't mean we abandon it to a life of licentiousness or it doesn't mean we abandon faith. Instead, we ought to, to cling more to our faith, more tightly realizing it is our only hope, okay? This is where God's chastening and pruning comes into play as believers are subject to the constant pruning from a father's loving hand. In this, we find true meaning and sound context in scripture. 2 Timothy 1.9, it says it really well. Speaking of God, it says, who has saved us and called us to a holy calling. Okay, now if you just read those two words, you would think, okay, I gotta be perfect in my flesh. Then it says, not according to our works, all right, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That, that just lays it out perfectly. We are called, we've been saved, we've been called to a holy calling, not by our works, by being Christians and by our faith and trust in him. Mormons today attempt to teach that being saved or born again, justified and sanctified, is a combination of a one-two punch of grace and works. This is their big thing. 
This is a biblical impossibility. It is another gospel. Listen closely. Romans 11:6 makes it so plain. Just listen, okay? And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. And if it be works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Now, having heard this plain reasoning from God's word, let's hear what respected LDS apostle Bruce R. McConkie said when he was alive. He said, quote, salvation is free, but it must also be purchased. Salvation is free, but it must also be purchased. And listen what he says this purchase is. And the price is obedience to the laws and ordinances of the LDS gospel. In a futile and utopian attempt to free the proletariat workers from bondage of the ruling class, Karl Marx wrote in the last chapter of his Communist Manifesto this, quote, The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all the existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at the communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. I want to borrow from Marx's theme, but alter the words and address the LDS people and their leadership today and say, the Christians disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing religious conditions. Let the ruling brethren in the LDS church tremble at this internal Christian revolution. The believers have nothing to lose but they, their change. They have liberty to win. And with that, let's open up the phone lines. 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. First time callers, if at all possible. LDS callers, please, we'd love to hear from you. And please turn your television sets down. Now we're going to take a brief live commercial break from moi. Oh, that's good. People often say, Sean, how do, you, how do you look so dashing there on TV? And all I can say is, I drink green tea HP. And, and some people say, Sean, do you, do you, how do you remember everything you remember on the show? And all I can say is, I drink green tea HP. And, and then some people say, Sean, where do you get those cool shirts, dude, and that style? And, and how come your set's so awesomely constructed? And how do you get such good gas mileage? And, and, and how do you do everything that you're, you're able to do, like watch television for a few hours a night and stuff like that? And I say, all I can say is I drink green tea HP. Green tea HP. It will change your life. Sort of. So check it out. The phone number's there. I drink it every day. I like the stuff, and I think it's healthy. One packet, 50 cups of green tea ax antioxidants, axioxidants. And uh, so check that out. And right now we're going to run a uh, spot for the heart, uh, partners program, and then we'll come back and take your calls. Oh. I have absolutely no...
You are watching Heart of the Matter, a live weekly television program right here from the Mecca of Mormonism. We've been on the air for almost four years now. Now, we're a tax-exempt corporation, and we survive solely on your financial support. There are two ways that you can uh, help support this ministry financially, through the mail or through the Internet. Now, some people give as they can. And everything is a great blessing to us. We are so grateful for the support people have given over the years. We also invite anyone inclined to join with us in this fruitful ministry by becoming a partner. And this simply means you're in a position to contribute a certain amount annually, which greatly helps us with our planning. Be our friend, become our partner, but we do need your support if you're so inclined of the Lord and you have already given to the church. For more information, call 888-868-HOTM or 888-868-4686. Write to us at 314 South Redwood Road, Salt Lake City, 84104 or get on the internet www.hotm.tv for more information. God bless y'all. Give us a call. You have questions or comments. 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. We actually do have a line open. The other are full, but we have a line open. So if you have not been able to get in before, give us a call. Listen, from a fellow Christian, and this, listen to this. On one of your shows, you were wearing a Ramones t-shirt. Sean, don't you think a Christian t-shirt would be more appropriate? I've attached a photo of my friends wearing them, and yeah, I'd have to say they definitely look more spiritual. Uh, I would like to say that uh, the reason I wear Ramon's t-shirts and the reason I wear Bad Religion t-shirts is because, one, I like the bands, and two, uh, I like to talk to people who like those bands. You see, if I could really relate to engineers, I would wear a pocket protector and I would put pins in them and things like that. That's what, I can't relate to them because they're too smart for me. But people who like the Ramones and, and Bad Religion, I can talk to those guys. So they see me wearing it and they come up, hey man, you like the Ramones? I'm like, yeah, dude, I like them a lot. What do you think of Jesus? I haven't really thought about it, you know? Is he a good band? And I say, no, he's this other guy. Let me tell you. And so we start dialoguing and see, that's why I do that. Now, can we, can we possibly get over this junk? I mean, truly, can we get over this junk? Didn't Paul say, hey, to the Greeks I become a Greek, to the Jews I become a Jew, to the weak I become as the weak, so as to reach all for Christ? Can we please put away these horribly nitpicky, pinched nose ideas and try to make everybody wear a N-O-T-W shirt on whatever they do? Okay, now, Troy, a Christ, who, who is a Christian, and he calls himself an apostle, he writes me and says, Sean, you're going to hell for these reasons. One, you said Arminianism is a lie, that God does not predestinate by foreknowledge, your, by foreknowing your free choice. A conditional election, limited atonement, irresistible for preservation. Two, you reject the work of apostles, those directly commissioned by God to set up the church and appoint elders of a locality. Read Ephesians 4. Weirdly, you say that uh, non, once saved, always saved, like more... I can't even make sense of why I'm going to hell, according to this guy. All right? And yet, according to him, I am because we don't agree on a couple things. Like I said, I don't believe the office of apostles continues on. And Troy, being an apostle, is highly insulted. He ends it, praise the Lord for this discernment that I have. Amen. 
So uh, I just want to say, listen, we got to learn to kind of get along a little better and not be so picky on different things. We do have different views. Many different denominations and churches see things different ways. And it doesn't mean I'm going to hell. You see, Troy, what you've missed, being an apostle, which is really amazing, is that the only reason anybody, anybody goes to hell is because they refuse to believe in Jesus. That's why they go to hell. Do you understand that, my friend? It's not because I don't believe you're an apostle. It's not because I wear a Ramones t-shirt. It's just because I would refuse to believe in Jesus, Yeshua, our God in the flesh who came and gave his life. Can we get over this stuff, please? All right, we're going to go to Susan, who's LDS in Salt Lake City. Susan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Susan? Oh, we lost her. Susan, call back because she's LDS, and I think that was good. We're going to go to Bradley in Nampa, Idaho. Bradley, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. I have a, uh, it's more of a comment, I guess. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of studying of the um, the words of the Bible in the old language, um, both Old Testament and New Testament. And uh, I talk to a lot of people, and uh, one of my friends who's a Greek and um, Hebraic um, scholar type of guy um, informed me that the word um, bedosh and hagios, which appear in the original text, um, are inherently meant to be uh, somebody who is holy. But we know that we're not holy on our own terms, but it's Christ's blood that makes us holy. Right. And um, because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, and if you will, the beef was crushed because of him, uh, we have a new identity, and it's saint. Um, Paul calls one of the worst churches in the New Testament, Corinth, I mean, he had to write, he had to write two letters to them to get you know huge letters. I'm sure there was some other visits that he did, but at least two letters to them to tell them what they were doing wrong. And he calls them in uh, chapter one, uh, verse one and two. He calls them saints, not because of man's choosing, but clearly, obviously, because of God's choosing through the Lord Jesus Christ. Really good point. That's an excellent point about him calling them saints. And then he addresses all the horrible things that they are, get involved in. That's a great point, uh, Bradley. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for sharing, my friend. Bless you. God bless you. Bye-bye. We're going to Mike in Salt Lake City. He's LDS. He's a first-time caller. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, is this me? It's you, Mike. Hey, how you doing? Good. I can't... I'm doing well. How are you? I'm all right. I've been a little sick. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about it, too, Mike. But, hey... I, I've, I've seen your show a couple of times. Well, not completely, just flipping through. And I, I, you were talking about the, the whole faith and works tonight. Yeah. And kind of kind of getting yourself into a circular argument. Um, take a look at James 2.17. Yeah, I know, James. We've talked all about that. And okay, we, uh, well, what, what's the explanation then? Well, the explanation is James is talking about faith there, right? And there's no problem, there's absolutely no problem when it talks about someone having faith that they manifest that faith by works. But he, what's that? So faith without works is dead. Okay, I understand that, and I agree with that completely. I agree with James. The problem is he's talking again, Mike, about faith. He is, the, the, the precursor to his argument is faith here. He doesn't say works without faith, he says faith without works. So what comes first if we're talking about a horse and cart there? What is the horse in the works faith deba debate? Is the horse 
uh, faith or is it works? It's faith. Okay, exactly. And so you first have your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. And you first place your life in his hands. And then as a sign of that faith, you will do the works. Now, let me ask you this. What are the works? Obedience. To what? To Jesus Christ. Okay, and what did he say? Oh, there's a whole bunch. Love thy neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love, right? What's that? Love is is the ultimate, right? Right. Right. Okay, did Jesus talk about a new and everlasting covenant? It, 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 it's, it's, it's love, for, for him, it's love to thy neighbor, doing well to others. That, that's the whole basis of okay. it. Did Jesus give a commandment that you have to be temple endowed? <laughs> no. Okay, so why do the LDS say that in addition to loving your neighbor and loving God, that you have to be temple endowed? All right. All right. So that's my, that's my point, Mike. My point is this. I have no problem, and no Christian has a problem with James. Christians, in fact, I f- have found, and remember, I've been on both sides of the fence. I have found Christians to be far more fully involved in their life with serving God and Jesus with everything they do, where the LDS typically tend to do it on Sundays and the nights they have their meetings during the week. But the I'm, I, let me tell you something really quick. I'm going to embarrass him. He's going to get really mad at me. I am behind the camera. I'm looking at as a guy, and I have never met a man more dedicated to serving and giving and loving and helping than him. This, mm-hmm. this, yeah. And I so in ta- in terms of faith without works, any believing Christian embraces that fully. But remember, they put the horse before the cart. They never say we work ourselves into heaven. Because our works are going to prove something. We, they never say that. The LDS do. I just read you quotes. You have to do their works. You have to do these things in order to be saved. And that is absolutely non-biblical, Mike. All right. All right, my brother. Thanks for calling. Hey, keep up the good work, buddy. Okay, thanks. Bye. Good work. I guess I'm doing good works. That means I must have faith. Hey, let's go to Lori in Atlanta, Georgia. She's LDS. Lori, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi, Lori. How are you? Good. Good to talk to you. Um, I um, am active LDS and um, have been my entire life. was um, born in the Covenant, um, temple-going member of the church. Uh-huh. Um, and through your show and, and um, lots of research that I've done on the Internet have um, come to discover... A wonderful thing called grace, which wow. <laughs> is a new concept to me. That is so awesome. Um, it is, and um, raising um, children, it's it's great to, to have that knowledge also, um, yeah. and to be able to share that with them. Um, so I'm at a point now where um, I'm you know 90% sure, probably 99% sure that um, my family and I, or at least my children and I, will be going. Um, and wondering if you recommend that, because I do have um, the feeling that I should maybe take this to my church leaders and maybe present some of the questions that I have for them or to them that yeah. I have. Um, and just wondering what your recommendation is there. 
Okay, let me ask you uh, this, um, Lori. Are you married? Yes. And where's your husband stand with all this? Um, supportive um, is definitely not as far along as far as, you know, researching yeah. as I am, but is very willing to listen and, and is supportive of me and loves me very much. And we have a very good marriage, and I'm grateful for him. How old are your children? Um, they're all teenagers. Oh. And how tied into the uh, culture of Mormonism are they? Um, it, it's more of a social aspect, I guess. Maybe I've known for several years, you know, I've, I've had questions, so have kind of backed off on um, pushing it too much from the home. Yeah. Um, but, of course, you know, they've, they've had weekly lessons, and um, my daughter came back on Sunday very confused about hell and <laughs> didn't really know what to answer her that way. So yeah. um, That's always a fun topic, isn't right it? Now. Okay, and then let me ask you, are you or have you attended uh, a, ch a Christian Bible teaching Christian church outside of the LDS, I mean, outside of your religious experience with no. Mormon? Okay. This is, this is my suggestion, but bottom line, take it to the Lord. I mean, literally, Lori, I would go to him and say, look, I, I don't know what to do at this point. A lot of people, when they start to discover the truths of Mormonism, they, they have the reaction that you're having, is that they want to go and, and kind of tell their leaders exactly what they think. And if the Lord is leading you to do that, that that's fine. You have nothing to fear because you've okay. understood grace. And once you understand grace, everything they say is going to clang in your ears from now on. And I've experienced that. But you also may just want to uh, take, a, take a Sunday or a Saturday night or something and visit, uh, try to find a, a local, good, solid Bible teaching church. Uh, you're in Georgia, man. They're probably on every corner. <laughs> and, uh, and step into one and, and just see and see if you find, find yourself comfortable and just get kind of fortified in the Word of God as you teach your children and let the uh, Holy Spirit lead you. Now, I'm going to have people say I should be telling you immediately, take your names off the records of that church and run. But I right. know that God has you in his hands and he is leading you and he is faithful and you trust him. You don't trust me and all this. You trust him. And I promise you, Lori, as you trust him in love, you open up your word, start the gospel of John if you haven't done it. And you read that word and you pray and you maybe hit a church every now and then with your husband if he'll go or if not. And you just keep relying on the Lord and you tell your children about Jesus and faith and grace and love and forgiveness in him and him alone. And the Lord is going to do a work in your life like you won't believe. Yeah, he already has. I bet he has. Praise and God. Will you keep us appraised of how it goes? Yes, and thank you so much to uh, you and, and all the information I've been able to get from you. You're welcome. Thanks. God bless. You too. Thanks. Okay, bye. We uh, Operators are clearing calls. We still have one line open, so... Uh, they say the spring night is nice, love is in the air, and so no one's calling. Uh, actually, we only have one line open, but uh, we have from a Christian teenager, I am so frustrated because of my friends at school. They always say that because Christians can't be perfect, um, and it's impossible for someone not to sin, they say that, uh, couple that with God's grace, it's basically okay for them to do anything they want. I always say be perfect just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. I say that if, if this verse meant to just try and be good and follow God's commandments, then it wouldn't include a comparison to the Father in the same sentence. The Christians around me don't seem to have, don't have to sin 
In fact, they shouldn't sin, contrary to what some say. That doesn't mean that they'll be perfect, just that it is an attainable goal in the scripture. Is this an idea of the emergent church that I have to that uh, I have been hearing so much about where anybody can just do anything they want and claim that it's okay because God forgives? You know, this is really an excellent uh, question and point. And uh, it is, it is uh, one that has become more and more prevalent, especially in uh, the teenage world. Uh, my daughters who uh, have come out of Mormonism in their high school years all went through their high school years still with me doing what I do. And uh, they said the Christians in school, at least where we lived, many of them, not all of them, but many of them, were the same way. And we just have a title for that. And we call it carnal Christianity. But this is not what Scripture teaches it teaches that you do seek the Lord and you do seek to have him help you live righteously. This is this living sanctification we were talking about. And you, you um, give your will and you let the Lord lead you and guide you and help you through the trials and temptations that you have. No, you will not be perfect. But that's not a license for sin. Paul says this is not used as a cloak of licentiousness, but this liberty that we have. But use it to, to become perfect in, in, in love and perfect in our service and, and help our bodies and our lives become sanctified. This happens through the Holy Spirit within you. Now, I would suggest that what has happened is, I'm not going to lay it on the emergent church, though they could contribute, is that it's a, it's a failure to understand Scripture. And why does that occur? Because there's a failure to teach Scripture. Why does that occur? Because there's a failure to keep people in churches if you teach scripture. What do they do now? They teach entertaining stuff. They tell jokes. They get people to laugh and feel good for a minute of their life. And so people stop wanting to hear the word of God. They lose track of what it really means. And pretty soon, you know, we're saved by God. You can do what you want. Just not true. So the, my suggestion to you, Taylor, out there in South Carolina, is you set the example of what a Christian means, understanding that that call to perfection, that word perfect means complete. It does not mean perfect. Uh, it means complete as your Father is in heaven, and you're to be perfect in love. Uh, but also your actions are going to be important to that, which is loving your neighbor as yourself. All right, let's go to Susan in, in uh, Salt Lake City. She's called back. She's LDS. Susan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Good evening. Hi. Um, I was calling because I had a question after you did your montage about going national last week. Yeah. Um, my question is, is how, how is this going to be presented? Like, say, for instance, in another state like Minnesota, where I was born and raised, that already is a Bible-based Christian Lutheran community. How would they find any interest in your message about Bible-based Christianity versus what the LDS believe when the LDS religion outside of Utah is a minority religion. Yeah, it's a minority religion, you're right, but it's powerful. I mean, we had a man run for president uh, who was LDS and he didn't do a bad job and probably would have made a good president, except that he was LDS. And we are gonna have future uh, men run. They are very powerful, they're very wealthy, and they are knocking on doors in Minnesota as well as anywhere else. My idea is in the places where Mormonism isn't strong is that it's a preemptive strike and that people who watch the program will be able to understand concepts about Mormonism so that when those missionaries knock on the door and they say, we're here to represent uh, Jesus Christ and his message of grace, 
that those people on the other side of the door will be able to understand exactly what is going on and be able to confront them with the fact that they really aren't teaching grace. So it's a preemptive strike in areas where Mormonism isn't known. People are in, engaged and they want to understand about Mormonism. That's why Time Magazine, Newsweek has run front page articles on Mormonism. It's not just some passing thing. But this information, I believe, will help people in, in hopefully an entertaining and engaging way. Does that help, Susan? It does. It does. And I appreciate your response. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. God bless. Bye-bye. We're going to Cindy in Salt Lake City, XLDS, first-time caller. Cindy, you're on Heart of the Matter. We lost Cindy now. And operators are clearing the other calls. Uh, Jim, I mean, John writes, hello, just wondering, I am married... I married a Mormon, so would their church start a record of me and our children? John, absolutely. Yeah, you will be listed on the records, your name, your children's name, their middle initial, their date of birth, and it will say uh, NM, non-member. And you will always be on those records as a non-member. And uh, if you were to divorce your wife or if you were to, uh, your wife were to pass away or whatever the situation, those records would be used for genealogy. They would be used for temple work. And if you were to die, if, if God forbid your whole family was taken in a plane crash, somebody would go in and seal you to your wife, your children to your wife for time and all eternity in a Mormon ceremony vicariously. So absolutely it is that way. You can do something about that by uh, telling your wife you don't want that to occur. Send some letters and hope they listen to you. Uh, still clearing, this is from Jamie Morgan. I recently came out of Mormonism. I've never felt better and never been more stressed. Only two months ago, I was dating seriously, looking to go to the temple, attending BYU. I am my father's dream child, for he is currently a bishop. I began to look into the Mormon religion and found my true feelings, leading me away from the faith. I came to have great faith and feelings in uh, God and, and even Christ. I could not hide my feelings, and I told uh, a few close to me that deserved to know. I broke the engagement and left the school. I have not confronted my parents about my true feelings, and I'm terrified of what the repercussions will be. I am not blaming the church for any of this. I am grateful for the church, for I feel that without the religion, I would have had no faith in God and Christ, but I know with all my heart that Mormonism is not the way I want to live, nor the way I w God wants me to live. I really enjoy watching your show. Uh, yada, yada, yada. In other words, what do you suggest I do in, as I head for this long journey? And Jamie, what I suggest you do, like I do to everybody, it's kind of like a broken record, but I believe it, is you take it to the Lord and you trust in Him. And you know, as your parents see that your leaving Mormonism has not been deleterious to you, but that you have grown as an individual, that you haven't become a bar fly, and that you are now actually walking with Christ and you're loving more. Maybe at some dinner you'll be sitting there quietly with your family and talking, and your parents will say, well, we've noticed a change, you know, what's gone on? And at that point in time, the Holy Spirit will say, listen, why don't you break it to them now? You know, and they have seen a little history with it. Sometimes it might be a form of rebellion for kids or younger people to leave Mormonism and be able to have the enjoyment of going to their parents and saying, I left. And you really don't want it to be about that. You want them to see a change in you and then present it to them in love and to express your love for them and just tell them you are far more fulfilled. And I'm going to tell you something. We see it all the time. It takes one in a family. 
one in a family for the Holy Spirit to work on them and them change just like that caller we had a minute ago from, from wherever she was. And that will start infiltrating entire families and it spreads out and everybody starts saying, wow, the king has no clothes. Let's get out of here. All right, we're going to Robert in Clearfield. Might be LDS. Robert, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi, Robert. Uh, hello. Um, kind of recently uh, kind of left the LDS church and... Uh, I've been talking with a friend of mine, he's an atheist, and he said that uh, in the Bible there's been a couple of premonitions that Jesus has mentioned, and they've came and passed for the end of days. And I was just wondering your, your thought on that. Yeah, I think he's absolutely wrong. And uh, if you want to cite him in an email, it would be good because that way I could respond by looking at some research. If you called me on the air about them, I might not be able to do it because I'm not a scholar. But uh, is, I know uh, there was no premonition spoken by Jesus that has passed, did not occur. He was probably looking at Jesus' uh, prophetic utterances of what would happen both to Jerusalem around the time of 70 AD and its applications to the end times. That would be my guess of what he's talking about, but I'd have to know. Anyway, I would not believe that your friend is right. Okay, and one other thing I'd like to just mention is... Uh, Whenever I've heard of things that uh, people have said about, um, you know, Joseph Smith doing the most works for um, the gospel in a sense, I look back and say that's kind of hypocritical because you've got Jesus that has done most that anybody has ever done. And so I just wanted to mention that uh, that's a little annoying to hear them say that. Yeah. So... You know what? I got to be honest, Robert. I, I tuned out for a second because they're writing a big, long question in front of me. Make your point one more time. Well, I, I was just saying that as far as the LBS church talk about uh, Joseph Smith being the uh, oh. prophet that has made most uh, efforts in their religion, I but see. they still add Jesus Christ in the religion, then that would be totally hypocritical because Jesus has been the one that washed away all the sins. Amen. Good point, Robert. Really appreciate it. All right, thanks. thanks. God bless. Bye-bye. I have a question here from Anonymous. If you toss the seeds from the U.S., will LDS bring back polygamy? Also, if you go national, will you still be on TV20? If we go national, we certainly will be on TV20. And uh, if you toss the seeds from the U.S., I would just suggest that absolutely they would because they would become they would have become disaffected from the United States they would have become their own island uh, uh, under themselves which is what Brigham Young wanted to be in the first place he wanted to secede from the US and become his own territory and that was his full dream and I would bet if the LDS Church did which I don't think they will they have their hands in far too much in what goes on here but if they did yes because it's part of their doctrine 132 and they believe in it and they will uh, practice what they believe in. The only reason they don't is because it's been prohibited. I would bet that if uh, polygamy was reinstituted that you would find members of the church in the hierarchy probably practicing it uh, once again. Uh, I have David from Huntington Beach. He's LDS, first time caller. David, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean. Yeah. This is Dave, David Jarman, little David. David Jarman, your dad was my good friend throughout high school. That's right, man. I, I just got home, and I turned on the TV. I saw it, but I'd say, what's up, man? <laughs> well, I, I, I happened to be walking by, so I'd sit down and do a television show. What are you doing? 
Right on, right on. You're yeah, home from I your saw, mission? I saw Cassidy a couple weeks ago up here. Did ya? Yeah, dude, I just haven't seen you in forever. You're home from the mission? Yeah, I got home about a year ago. So I'm just up here at BYU studying uh, international relations. Excellent. And uh, how's your relationship with the Lord? It's going good, man. Uh, life is good right now. Things are good with the Lord, church, my family. Yeah? Yeah, dude. Hey, you call, do you know what I do on this show, David? Uh, just, just a little bit. Um, I haven't really watched it too much, but I turned on the TV and I saw you. So, so you're, a return, you're a return missionary. You're, you're home how long? Um, almost a year now. What a great call. Let me ask you, David, how are you saved? How am I saved? Yeah, how is a, a Latter-day Saint, how is anybody saved? Tell me what the missionaries teach today. Saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? Um, have faith in Him, follow His teachings, do your best. Okay, and what does that mean to do your best and follow His teachings? Um, you just follow with all your heart. And does that mean to be baptized? Um, yes, if that's what he wants, then follow his example, just like how he was baptized. So you would agree with that then? Yeah. Okay. David, we only have 20 seconds left. I would love for you to call back, and let's talk as a return missionary recently with a, uh, a, a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, about that concept. Will you do it? Right on, man. Hopefully. Hey, really good to hear from you, my friend. Say hi to your parents. Give them love. Love you. Later. See you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my. Gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my. Gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my.
My name is Todd Friel. I am your host. The wrench the song refers to. Wow. It doesn't get much sadder than this. Another young, now old, old 38, <laughs> celebrity dead. Corey Haim, do you remember this kid right here? And maybe not with the older look, but as a little boy, he was one of those cute little child celebrities. Turns out he died at the age of 38. But he's not the only celebrity to die recently. Tony played the role of Kirk Cameron's best friend in Growing Pains. His name is now added to a familiar list of child stars who never made it through middle age. Brad Renfro, who starred in The Client at age 12, was found dead at 25 after an apparent overdose of heroin. Jonathan Brandis, star of the 1993 film Ladybug, hung himself age 27. That's, that's, uh, that's all that is is just plain sad. That What should we do with these deaths? Honestly, if nothing else, they should be a cautionary tale, should they not? How many of us would like to see our kids be celebrities or superstars on the athletic field? Maybe, just maybe, having a child act in an adult role in a really heavy, weird one at that is not something that we should be striving for for our children. What about Corey Haim? What do we say about him? I'll tell you what I say as an evangelical not knowing anything about what this fellow believes. I hope to see him in heaven. That's what, that's what I hope. Do I have any any proof that he'll be there? No, but I have hope. I think this is a good reminder of how we Christians should deal with the death of somebody that we do not know of any sort of regeneration happening. We don't want to water down the gospel and suddenly become universalists like a Shane Claiborne or a Brian McLaren or a you-name-it emergent these days. Hey, don't get there. Well, no, it's, if somebody doesn't repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ, their sins won't be forgiven. They won't go to heaven. They'll go to hell. So what do we do when somebody like this dies? We say we, we hope that he repented and put his trust in Jesus. Do we have any sort of public testimony? No, and I don't want to be naive, but it is my hope before this young man passed out, went unconscious, and died, it is my hope that he did indeed repent and put his trust in Jesus. I think that's how we Christians should treat the death of people who don't make a profession of faith. We don't want to water down the gospel. We don't want to water down the exclusivity of Jesus. But we still want to say we hope. At the death of Corey Haim, who did Nightline go to? Well, of course, they went to Kirk Cameron, I guess because the other kid from Growing Pains died recently. They asked Kirk Cameron, well, how come you haven't turned out to be a tragic story? Kirk Cameron admits that he was extremely fortunate to avoid the perils of stardom. I realized at a young age, at about 17 years old, right at the height of the success of Growing Pains, that living a life chasing after money, success, and fame ultimately would not satisfy the longings of my heart. And I began answering, asking the big question, who am I? Why am I here? And for me, a personal faith in Jesus Christ answered those questions, satisfied the longings of my soul, and sent me in a direction that saved me from tragedy. And clearly got him a better hairstyle. <laughs> that he had going. Way cool. Well done, you little growing pain, you. When you hear these stories, Corey, this poor guy, he went into rehab 15 times. Yeah, enough. It's 
not a surprise that he never had success. Why? Because there's no success in escaping a demonic thing like drugs and alcohol without actually getting saved. Got to tell you, I've seen this myself. I can't speak for all the teen challenges. These are drug and alcohol rehab facilities all over the country. There's hundreds of them. I saw the one in Minnesota, and it is an unbelievable place. When you walk in the door, I kid you not, the first thing they ask you, you can be strung out in a complete mess. Do you know Jesus Christ? Boom! Right away they hit you with the gospel and just preach at you and preach at you and preach at you. People get saved. That's the gospel. The gospel is forgiveness of sins, not, hey, do you want to lose your drug habit? No, that's not the gospel. That's not why somebody should repent and trust Jesus. Repent and trust Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and then God cleans them up. And I'm telling you, the recidivism rate, the difference between a Christian place and a secular place is absolutely shocking. And the look on their faces, the clarity in their eyes when they get saved and cleaned up by God, Honestly, it is the only hope for you if you are on drugs and alcohol. Get yourself into a right relationship with God. Repent and trust the Savior. Let me tell you something. He'll clean you up just swell. Speaking of the uh, little growing pain, don't know if you realize this, but he is in ministry partnership with a fellow named Ray Comfort. Ray, the celebration of the 150, uh, the anniversary, the release of Origin of Species was a big deal last year. Ray, honestly, this guy, he wrote a new forward to the Origin of Species, and they passed out about 200,000 of these copies in the United States of America, 200,000 copies. In the beginning, it's got a little intelligent design, a different understanding of how we got here. We didn't get big bang, didn't crawl out of the ooze, and of course, it's got a gospel message, a couple hundred thousand on, on campuses. Nutty. Richard Dawkins and the atheist, well, they're headed down to New Zealand and Australia. And so Ray Comfort sent a bunch of those Origin of Species books down there to get passed out, making the atheist just easy touches. Giving away free copies of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species might seem a strange way to promote intelligent design over evolution, but these books have a new foreword. 54 pages of information about intelligent design. It's the work of expat New Zealand evangelist Ray Comfort, founder of the Living Waters Ministry in America. He's keen to promote intelligent design before the visit here of Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous atheist and evolutionist. Everything didn't get created from nothing. Everything was created by an intelligent designer, and there's lots and lots of evidence for that. The free book idea got students at Victoria University thinking... I'd just be quite interested as to see what this is to say about, yeah, both sides of the story. People can believe whatever they want, as long as the creationism is kept out of schools, because it's a theory, it's not scientific. But others say comfort's edition is below the belt. There are copies which are intentionally uh, misleading the public and intentionally lying about parts of um, evolutionary theory. Comfort's followers will give away more copies of the book outside Dawkins' talk. We want to respect people's intellect, give them both sides of the story so they can make an educated choice on what to believe themselves. Atheists say, take it. Skim through the introduction and maybe even cut it out. And bingo, you've got yourself a good copy of On the Origin of Species, possibly one of the most influential and liberating books ever written. Just not read by very many people. Way to go, Ray. Way to go, growing pain. This is Ray. The good news is the Chinese 